Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we talk socialist dreaming, why it's important to dream, how the nexus prevents us from dreaming, and where our dreams might lead us. So welcome back to fucking cancelled. Welcome back to fucking cancelled. So yeah, today we want to talk about socialist dreaming. Um, it's something that we talk about a lot um, amongst ourselves, by ourselves, I mean me and Clementine. Um, and I don't know, I was thinking the other day about how in one of our first episodes I spent like 45 minutes carefully going through the political platform of a, a candidate for the Green Party of Canada um, simply because it was like so cool to see uh, a clearly well like laid out socialist political platform um, like point by point with like a whole bunch of like interesting ideas for how to change things that wasn't, you know, uh, crazy and was actually sort of like, yeah, like an achievable um, idea for how we could bring about like a different way of, of relating to politics. And, and um, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was really cool to do that. And it made me feel really good to do that, you know, mm-hmm. um, even just to see it. Um, and when I was thinking about that, I was like, yeah, it's, it's it's because that was you know a set of socialist dreams and we just like don't really have any of that in the in the sort of left scenes that we're part of yeah and like i don't know it's uh there's a federal election coming up right now in canada and like we were talking about how you know when advertising like the various candidates and everything like they just have like a picture of their face you know, when you're walking around, there's, like, the Liberal Party, and there's, like, a picture of Justin Trudeau and, like, whatever. Um, and and it's, like, we don't actually, like, what would it be like if the parties actually had, like, a detailed list of their policies? Yeah. Like, really accessible for everybody to see because that's what we're voting on. But it's, like, instead it's all about, like, image and branding, and it's, like, we don't actually get to see people's policies. So that's, like, part of it, too. Yeah, for sure. There's no, I mean... It's not just that there's no socialist dreams, but there's no dreams, like, in, in politics. Like, nobody is trying to, like, do anything interesting. They're just trying to get elected for another couple of years, right? And their slogans reflect that, honestly. It's, like, the conservative slogan in, in Quebec, anyway, is, like, agir pour le Québec. It's just, like, act for Quebec. Right. <laughs> and it's, like, okay, like, what, what are you going to do, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and so it's, like... I don't know. And then beyond that, it's like, what, what do we want? Like as socialists or as people who are suffering through exploitation under capitalism or as people who are concerned about the climate, um, what do we want? Like, what are we actually working towards? And I feel like a lot of the times inside the nexus anyway, a lot of the visions that we are presented with often have to do with just sort of like rearranging Um, who has what under capitalism. Um, There's no, like, really transformative um, dreams about actually, like, getting rid of capitalism altogether or having, like, a totally different way of living. Um, And it's, like, we are living in a time of a lot of, like, despair, a lot of, like, doom, 
people feel really overwhelmed. It feels like really impossible um, to move towards something positive. There's like a lot of like bleakness. Um, and that has like an effect on us of actually like putting us into freeze where it's easier to just like ignore what's going on. Because like if you go on Instagram or you go on whatever your social media drug of choice is, like you're just going to be like, you know, flooded with like one atrocity after the next, right? And you're going to be like caught up in all of these demands to like do something, like you individually, personally do something about all of these like horrific atrocities that are like so beyond your even capacity to like hold simultaneously. Um, and it's like really fucking overwhelming. And I think a lot of people are just like, fuck, especially about climate stuff. People are just like, fuck, I don't know what to do. And we're just like caught in freeze. Um, and so like socialist dreaming, the idea of having like expansive visions for like what could be possible, um, instead of this hellscape that we're living in is in and of itself, like a motivating practice. Like it inspires people. It lights them up. It makes them feel like there is a goal to work towards. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I don't know. Yeah, there's like a huge lack of socialist dreaming. Um, nobody is coming up with with concrete ideas of what a post-capitalist or non-capitalist society could look like in the countries where we actually live um, or how to get there, um, how like what we're going to do to bring that about. You know, there's like really none of that in the nexus. Um, instead, there's a lot of I mean, it's all related to capitalist realism, um, which is a concept that Mark Fisher popularized. Um, you know, which we've talked about on the pod before, but basically it's just the idea that it's basically impossible these days to uh, think about the end of capitalism. And I think, the, yeah, the famous phrase is, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism mm-hmm. under capitalist realism, which is just this, like, this iron grip of capitalism over the popular imagination where, yeah, we don't even, we don't even believe that it's possible anymore to... Um, to come up with alternatives, but it is possible. It's absolutely possible. And mm-hmm. there are good policy alternatives to the capitalist hellscape that we live in. Um, yeah. So I don't know. There's a lot of reasons why there's a lack of socialist dreaming. I think that capitalist realism is a really big one. Mm-hmm. Clementine was just mentioning like the sort of like overwhelming saturation of doom porn yeah. that like constantly surrounds us is like another part of it, which, you know, I don't want to like put on a tin tinfoil hat about it, but it's pretty convenient that like um, a huge amount of our media is just sort of these, these portrayals of the end of the world in which like capitalism was not abolished, you know? Right. Um, it's just these like grim dystopian portrayals of a future where like capitalism just led us into like this, this horrible, like bleak desert hellscape dystopia. Um, and you know, that you would think that that would galvanize people to change the way that things are run. But I mean, in reality, people are just like, well, I guess that means that capitalism is so overwhelmingly um, powerful and its grip is so, so massive and concrete that like we will never be able to change it. Right. Yeah. So I think that's another big thing too. And then, yeah, the other thing is just that there's this like enormous lack of examples of what a socialist um, policy platform could actually look like. Right. If you live in North America, um, you have never had a socialist political party um, even remotely close to being in power. Um, the parties that do call themselves, uh, you know, officially socialist are tend to be like pretty crazy, fringe, um, you know, not really connected to what ordinary people think. Um, and yeah, you know, it's a huge problem. Like you're basically left with these, you, you're sort of picking between like, 
the far right, the center right, the somewhat right, and the sort of leftish liberals, right? And like those are your options. No one is saying anything that is even remotely um, in favor of of bringing about the end of the capitalist economic system. Yeah, it's like even seen as like a big deal to like want dental care. You know, like the idea that we might have dental care is seen as like, wow, that's like so out there, you know, um, we'd be like so lucky to get dental care. And I'm like, if that's the like, if that's as far as we can go in our imaginings, I'm just like, look, if people are struggling in their day to day lives under capitalism, things fucking suck, you know, they're trying to pay their rent. There's like, there's so much bullshit in the world. And we want to ask them to join us in struggle. We want to ask them to sacrifice, like, their time, their energy, you know, in some cases, like, depending on, like, what kind of political struggle we do, like, to actually take, like, material risks, things like strikes or, like, walking off the job, you know, is, like, a really intense material risk that people are taking. Like, if we want to ask people to, like, take part in political struggle in meaningful ways, it has to be worth it right? Like who wants to make great personal sacrifice to maybe get dental? You know, it's like, it's not super appealing. right? Right. But if you could like really like together, if we could like really come up with ideas that were like actually compelling, that actually would like make people think like, wow, like if things were different like that, it would be fucking amazing. Like it would, it would take away so much of my suffering and not just that it would give me so much more like positive things in my life, like things that I'm lacking, things that I wish I had, things that like maybe I'm not even aware that I'm missing because I'm so used to this capitalist realist hellscape that I live in, you know? Um, And there's like a pleasure in it. And recently um, on Instagram, in my stories on my Instagram, like I like shared like some of the socialist dreams that like we're going to talk about today on the pod some of the things that like Jay and I talk about this stuff all the time like we're always like what would it be like if like we had like the kind of society that we want to live in like what could that look like right and I shared some of that and then I like asked my followers like what are some of their socialist dreams and like it was so generative like people got really excited people had really strong emotional responses to it and they had all sorts of ideas right And I know that it was just, like, an intellectual exercise at that point. Like, it was just us thinking together. But I still think that that is, like, really, really generative, both on the level of, like, it's motivating. It pulls people out of despair. Um, It, like, turns on their creative brains. It gets them thinking. And I also think that it, like, increases their sense of, like, um, responsibility and, like, um, the idea that, like, the future is not just set in stone, but that we actually can be active participants in the unfolding future. And, like, um, is it in capitalist realism where he talks about the end of history? Or where's this concept about the end of history? I feel like maybe it is in capitalist realism. Well, the end of history is a concept by Francis Fukuyama. Okay. Um, who is like a conservative uh, economist. Okay. Um, who oh, basi- yeah. I looked bas- this up. Yeah. He's basically like capitalism like brought about the end of history. Like there's no more development to be okay. done, basically. We've yeah. reached like the final stage of like human development. Um, yeah. I feel like Fisher talks about this. or Maybe he, he doesn't he does use talk, that. He does talk about okay. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Basically, it's this idea that, like, and you you see it. Yeah, like, Fisher talks about it where he talks about how, like, now, like, popular culture and stuff is always, like, a throwback. Like, you always 
are doing like repeats of what happened in the 80s or like mm. aesthetically and like movies are remakes and stuff like this, right? Because there's this idea that like at a certain point things stalled and like nothing new is happening, right? And we see this with our um, political movements too. Like, yeah, I'm like remembering, I read um, Capitalist Realism like over a year ago, so it's a bit um, yeah. fuzzy, which is why I'm being a bit vague about it, but I rem- I'm remembering more now. And basically like he talks about how like a lot of like political um organizing or like activist stuff that we do is sort of like this um it's like aesthetically pointing back to earlier movements and like referencing them but the conditions have changed but the conditions have changed and also like a lot of the times we're not even doing even what they were doing then we're just sort of like referencing them or like aesthetically drawing upon them right yeah um and so yeah this idea of the end of history and the idea that like we're kind of just stuck on a moving train and like we're not going to produce anything new we're not going to create any new major changes and we're kind of just like resigned to this like capitalist realist hellscape and i'm like that's a terrible place for people to be in yeah and that's a vibe honestly that really like infects the entire society from top to bottom i think um but yeah like how it manifests in the left i mean there's a bunch of ways but one you know like it's it's this idea okay one of the um, interventions that the that that radical activists made in like the sixties and seventies mm-hmm. was this idea of breaking the spectacle. Um, how you're gonna like smash through um, by having like maybe like a, a demonstration where you do some like weird like wacky art thing to sort of like wake people up to right. the fact that they're sort of like living in the matrix kind of <laughs> right. kind of vibe, right? And you're supposed to like smash the spectacle, wake people up. Um, and, and through that you sort of like, you break the grip of the, uh, dominant hegemonic Mm -hmm. orthodoxies or whatever. Um, and one of the things that's happens in the intervening period is that that entire idea became, um, amalgamated into the spectacle. So it's now part of the machine. It's part of the matrix that if you go have a fucking demonstration, um, it's completely normal. You do your wacky art thing. That's completely normal too. Everyone expects it. It's normal. No one cares. Absolutely. No one cares. Definitely not the government. Um, and yet we're still stuck in this idea that if we just have like the, the best demonstration, um, somehow that it's going to change something, but it's not going to change something. It literally will never change anything. The exception is if you have a demonstration that has 500,000 people in it and is able to like block bridges and fucking whatever, like that kind of thing, maybe you're going to start seeing a couple of results from uh, the whatever party's in power. But that's, that's like a separate issue, right? But a small little demonstration is like still weirdly like the go-to tactic for activists on the left, even though it is demonstrably uh, ineffective, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I went to this like um, sort of like organizing meeting on Zoom recently for like climate activists and like I was kind of depressed by it because like they were talking about the urgency of what is happening right now about, you know, the science on climate and about how like our government is literally, I mean, the liberals have literally said that they're going to like build the pipeline for to fight climate change. Like <laughs> it's like so insane and it's like so obviously insane. And, and we know that times are dire. Like we know about tipping points. We know that like we don't have a lot of time to change things. And so this election that's happening is like important because it's like the choices that are going to get made are going to have like really real, um, you know, implications for climate change. Um, and basically like the meeting was about doing demonstrations. Like it was about having, rallies and stuff marches and I mean I get it but I'm also like 
you know, they were talking about past rallies and past demonstrations that they thought were really big successes and how they would like to do something similar. But I'm like, nothing has changed. Like, if your past demonstrations and your past rallies were successful, why are things still the same? Like, why are the liberals in power talking about, you know, making a a pipeline for climate change? At the last really big climate rally, the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, literally participated. He came, right? He was marching against himself. (laughs) Like that, so insane. That's how ridiculous it is. You and know? like, yeah, sorry, go. But what I was going to say, like, by bringing all this up about the demonstrations and stuff, is that like something that I've thought about is that one thing that might actually serve to sort of like smash through and and really kind of galvanize and wake people up, specifically because it's actually become so rare. Oddly enough, is simply to have um, someone who doesn't look like a crank. Um, present a sober, well-thought-out socialist policy platform mm-hmm. publicly, you know? Because that is something that literally has not occurred for so many decades in this fucking continent that it is enough to s- sort of, like, really, like, yeah, like, smash through the spectacle and, and, and sort of, like, snap people out of it, you know? And interestingly, I think that even though, you know, he's, you know, he's just, like, a social democrat kind of type, um, Bernie Sanders, his, his campaigns in the U.S., kind of served to do that a little bit. Yeah, it did have that effect. it did sort of, like, wake up a lot of people, and they were like, wait, hang on, we could just, we could have healthcare? Like, is that even an option, you know? Yeah, because I think everything, I mean, like, I feel like we're so desensitized, you know? And we've seen it all, and, like, we, everything is, like, reduced to, like, image and symbol, and, like, it's all, like, recycled images and symbols, and, like, very rarely are we just presented with, like, something like concrete and material like that. Like here's, yeah. here's what we plan to do yeah. and here's how we're going to do it, you know? Totally. Um, and I think in a certain way, people are really um, starving for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know, like, I think it's important. I guess. Okay. Like I'll, I, I, there's one more thing I wanted to say about the, the little tangent we went on about the the demonstrations like I feel like when we're critical of this stuff when we're like okay guys like look I get it I'm glad that people are doing something like I would rather people be doing something than nothing for sure Mm -hmm. I think that there's people doing lots of work you know trying to organize demonstrations and like I'm not trying to be like a downer and be like that fucking isn't gonna work you know like I get it I get why people are doing it because they're trying to do something and that is a very important impulse and I'm glad that people have that impulse yeah and I think that being critical of it can kind of lead us down the same road where we just end back at doom and gloom right where we're like okay well that's not gonna work and so then it's like okay well nothing is gonna work right and I guess what what I want to talk about in this episode and like what I've been thinking about lately is this idea that, like, we need something fucking new. We need something that is, you know, it might include things from the past, but those things are going to be rearranged and and they're going to be recreated into something new. We need something new because we are in unprecedented times, right? We need something new because so far nothing has worked to get rid of capitalism, right? So everything that we've tried hasn't worked. So we actually need something new. And what that new thing is... I genuinely don't know. Like, I have some ideas, I have thoughts, like, I have considerations. But, like, one of the things that is, like, fascinating to me 
is like, I'm just like human beings, we have incredible brains, right? Like our prefrontal cortexes in our brains are like bigger compared to the rest of the brain than any other animals, right? And that's why we have these crazy capacities that we have to like do the things that we do as a human species, right? And we have like this capacity to like imagine and strategize and dream at these like huge, huge levels. Um, And that's just like one brain on its own. And then when you combine brains together and both brains are doing that and they're actually like generatively bouncing off of each other, mm-hmm. like new things become possible that were not possible before. Yeah, right? they're emergent. They're emergent. Exactly. And that is what I am so curious about, about what if we showed up to these questions instead of being like, okay, we got to do a demonstration. What if we showed up to these questions being like, fuck man, I don't know. Like shit is really bad, but I believe that together we could create something new and we actually had the space to like really deeply think about and talk about these things and like have generative discussions and generative imaginings. And then from there start trying to build concrete plans and strategies. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that socialist dreaming is like a piece of that work. It's not the whole work because you can't just stay in the dreaming mode, but I think that it starts to get people's brains online in this way where they're like, okay, like what could be possible? And then once you start imagining all of these cool things that could be possible, you can start to ask like, how could they be possible? What would we have to do to get from here to there, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what I would love. I would love it if every single person listening to this podcast, you know, would go out into their lives and, like, have these conversations with anybody else that they know, just literally anybody, and and ask them, like, like what would what would you imagine for a world that could meet people's needs? You know, how how would you want to see the government run things in a way that, that could like address climate and climate catastrophe and in a way that could like, you know, provide for people and, and so on. Right. Yeah. And then if we actually felt invited to like take part in like thinking through these complex questions together, like where could we go? Yeah, totally. And we're going to get into some of our own dreams, um, later in the episode, but for now, uh, we wanted to talk about some of the ways in which um, the nexus prevents socialist dreaming. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious to anyone who spent time in the nexus that like there there is very little in the way of concrete ideas about what uh, the world would look like and how it would be run um, if the leftist political project writ large, um, were to succeed. Right. I think that, um, that's a huge issue for the nexus. And it's, it's not true that the nexus doesn't have any dreams. It does have its own dreams. Uh, and we're going to get into that too, but it prevents a lot of the kinds of things that me and Clementine were just talking about, specifically the kind of like generative, um, conversation based, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, throwing ideas at the wall and seeing what can stick kind of way of thinking about things. Um, because the nexus is very circumscribed in its list of acceptable political ideas. Um, the list of political ideas is constantly shifting sort of according to trends and what's fashionable and also like what the algorithm is currently serving people. But what you're kind of allowed to be into and what you're allowed to believe while still being part of the nexus is quite limited. Yeah. Yeah. Like I basically feel like I have two degrees in 
Nexon. Nexus studies? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like the way that I was taught to think is very specific, right? I was taught to think critically, but not even, I don't even think that the word critical really describes it because it was more like I was taught to scan for like, um, for like transgressions. Like I was taught to scan and I was given like a set of, it's kind of like I was taught to think a little bit like a computer in a way, Mm. like in an algorithmic way, because I was, I was given like a set of rules and I was, I was taught to scan for the breaking of those rules and then to point that out, Yeah, you know, to point at things that conflict with the ideology, ideology. Yeah. And even small things, even if it was like somebody who is, is like within the nexus and is presenting nexus ideas, I was encouraged to engage with that in such a way as to like go through it with a fine tooth comb and find every single place that this thinker like wasn't inclusive enough or like whatever, you know, um, whatever it is. And, and to like point that out and focus on it. And then to like, my contribution would simply be to point out how this person had failed in this minor way, you know? Um, and then when I was writing or I was like producing my own ideas, I was encouraged to basically do the opposite of that, where it's a defensive strategy, where instead of thinking creatively and expansively, I was encouraged to write and to think in such a way as to defend myself from people who are going to be going over my work with a fine tooth comb, looking for my own transgressions, right? Right, right. And so to always make sure that my language was very, very like precisely inclusive, you know, um, and to like always be saying all of the right nexus things. And like, I'm not sure if what I'm saying is like clear. Yeah, absolutely. Because what you're saying is that you were trained through like many years of academic training to make sure that what your thoughts do first and foremost is conform to a pre-existing yes. framework. Yes. Right. Um, and so how can you create anything new if all you're doing is trying to conform to a pre-existing framework. It's impossible. Yeah. You know, the most you can do is to try to come up with a new take. And we've talked about this with the take economy thing. Yeah. Um, a new take that like somewhat conforms, but kind of like pushes a boundary. Yeah. Um, and then try to make it so that your new take becomes the new like orthodox that take. That people you know? are like looking for. Yeah. Like, that's literally the extent of like woke, like nexus, um, um, scholarship, right? If you can even call it that. Um, and that doesn't just apply to academia, right? Because the nexus, you know, has like some roots in academia, but largely is this sort of like social media exercise, right? Yeah. Um, and so this kind of thing is constantly happening on social media as well. Yeah. And like, so you'll see like examples of people being like, and you see it all the time, right? With like, um, activist groups popping up, especially around climate stuff where people are like, okay, things are really bad. And maybe we don't have all the answers, but we feel like we should do something. And so they start trying to do something. And then people will be like, you know, you phrase this in a way that did not center the right identity group. And so therefore, we're taking you down, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and you will see people who were coming from like a sincerely genuine place of trying to do like meaningful political work. Um, Around like the single most important issue that they yes. can think of. And, and then they're put into a position of being backed into a corner and having to like publicly apologize and disband. Um, and it's like bonkers, you know, it's like totally crazy that we, um, that we have accepted that this is normal, you know? And like, even whatever, like I, I, I made a decision 
after getting canceled that I'm just going to talk normally and like just <laughs> like even just saying the word crazy like you know when I was inside the nexus like I always felt like I had to defend the use of the word crazy because people were always saying that it was ableist for me to use the word crazy even though I'm literally a psychiatric survivor and even though it's like a normal word that people say yeah, yeah. and they don't mean that mentally ill people are like whatever yeah, yeah, yeah um but like it would be more important for me to like carefully monitor my language and not say the word crazy than it would be to like have a genuine thought about something. Yeah, right? totally. Um, and so that dogmatism that permeates the nexus from top to bottom um, makes it really different. Um, makes it really difficult. Excuse me to come up with new ideas and to generate anything like useful. Honestly, yeah. you know, it's really just this like circle jerk, um, this like endless fucking circle jerk that. That, yeah, is basically incapable of producing any new ideas for how we can get ourselves out of this, like, fucking awful mess that we got ourselves into. And, like, the whole idea of, like, you know, being critical. Like, I think there is a way of being critical in a generative way instead of in this dogmatic way that just shuts things down, right? Like, the way that I was talking about how I was trained to be critical was to literally, like, look for transgressions of, like, a very specific way of thinking and then to, like, shut that idea down for not conforming in a specific way right but I think that there are ways to be like I don't because what this produces is is this idea that like in order to present your ideas you have to be totally confident that your ideas are correct yeah Um, and if they're wrong in any way then how dare you ever have suggested them you know yeah because it suggests like uh it it suggests something sinister about your character yeah that you would have even have a a wrong wrong thought thought. yeah Yeah. (laughs) and it's like but how do you think we're going to come up with ideas? Like we have to have wrong thoughts. Like we have to have ideas and then we have to talk about them together. And it's like, I might have a piece of the puzzle and you might have a piece of the puzzle and only in genuinely engaging with each other, we might be able to come up with the puzzle piece, you know, like that's, that's how it works. That's how like, that's how we create something new. And so what frightens me is that people might be sitting on some brilliant fucking ideas to get us out of the situation that we're in. There might be just regular people sitting around who have potentially inside of them new ideas. And there might be like one person, you know, like over in Australia or something. And like some other person in like, I don't know, somewhere else. Clouds <laughs> <laughs> are trying to come up with countries. <laughs> Sweden. In Sweden. And they are just, they those two people, if they were put in a room together and being given free, like, possibility to just talk through their ideas could maybe have some huge piece of the answer. I know that was, like, a really randomly specific, like, <laughs> example, but, like, you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah. And, like, but no, we're not allowed to. We're not allowed to, like, think openly and to be like, I don't know, man. Like, what about this? What about that? And if we were able to do that, you know, in a non-defensive way where we were genuinely listening to each other and in good faith, like, debating not to dominate the other person, but to, like, truly understand their position and to share our own position and to have the shared goal of coming up with something new. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. But in the current context, it can be literally quite dangerous in a bunch of material ways um, yes. to try to do that, to try to say like, Hey, I don't really have all the answers, but what about this? Yeah. What about that? You yeah. know, um, if you do that in any kind of public forum, 
that is influenced by the nexus, you run a very real risk of having your life destroyed, your reputation ruined, your career over, um, and all your friends leave you and they think that you're like a fascist or something. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that sounds so overstated. I'm sure that the people listening to this podcast though, the fact that you're already here listening to this, I'm sure that you realize that it is not overstated because you have seen examples of people being taken down in like extremely dramatic and over the top ways for like not phrasing something properly. by nexus standards you know um yeah so basically all of this means that we're so constricted in our capacity for creative thought and imagining um we are so constricted in the possibility of thinking together in generative ways yeah and i think that this like I came to this realization recently where I was like, you know, because I really want to be doing some kind of meaningful political work around climate change and around ecological destruction that we're facing because it's literally terrifying and because I truly believe that it is like the most important political issue that is that exists right now because it affects every single person on the planet and because we're headed to a really bad place really fast. Um... And I really want to be involved in meaningful political organizing around this. But what I found is that, like, I don't I don't know where to find meaningful political organizing around this because, unfortunately, most leftist spaces are so infected by nexus dogma that none of this creative thinking that I'm talking about is possible. And instead, you have all of these people just, like, performing, um, you know, trying not to get in trouble, trying not to get their organization canceled. And so, therefore, playing it, like, really small and not letting themselves think outside of the box, not letting not letting themselves or each other, like, come up with, like, new ideas or just, like, spitball, like, whatever might be going through their mind. Yeah. And I'm like, therefore, we can't get anything done, right? Totally. I think another factor that influences all this is that there's this profound pessimism that also permeates the entire nexus. Yeah. Um, and, I mean... You know, one one manifestation of it is in the literal like Afro pessimism that is like a mm-hmm. huge part of the way that the Nexus thinks about race. But the pessimism really like runs fucking deep, you know. And it's not even just the Nexus too. I think it's like it's like really widespread. Um, but it, you know, it manifests in this attitude that a lot of activists have, which which and basically this attitude is the idea that. Um, the main purpose of your activism is not to win material gains. It's to prove on social media, basically, that your enemies are as bad as you say they are. Right. And so a lot of the time this means like literally like setting yourself up to fail almost on purpose or sometimes literally on purpose so that you can then be like, look, they're bad. Yeah. You know, um, they won't give us what we're asking for because they're bad. Yeah. And they're racist and they're... Uh, white supremacist and they're ableist and they don't care about marginalized folks and whatever it is, you know what I mean? And the thing is that, like, we already know that. Like, we already know that the people in power, like, don't care about marginalized people, you know? Um, That is obvious. It's completely fucking obvious, right? Um, And to just prove it over and over and over and again and again and again doesn't do anything. Um, You're not convincing anyone. You're not making any sort of difference. Um, You're just, you know, confirming something that is already known. Yeah. Um, And I think that that comes from this, like, deeply pessimistic place where, I mean, again, it comes back to capitalist realism, right? Um, But it's kind of like a – just like a different kind of, like, version of it um, where people don't believe that they can win material gains. Yeah. They they don't even really, like, consider it, you know? Yeah. Um, And I've seen this in, you know, in, like, 
local activist kind of events. Um, but I mean, it, it happens all over the place. Yeah. It kind of makes me think of like, basically, you know, I find it fascinating that even on the left where like we, we don't have to get over the, the hurdle of like convincing each other of a few basic things. Like most people on the left generally agree that like, you know, capitalism is bad. Climate change is real. And like, we should stop exploiting human beings. Right. And like, even even Nexons like agree with that in some capacity, and yeah. like we're all we have these basic things, and even on the left, we can't have these generative discussions. We can't we can't find fruitful conversation and like come up with new ideas. Even on the left, where like we don't have to do that extra work, and then obviously, like you know, I think a little bit of what you were just getting at is like if we can't even talk to each other as leftists about things how the fuck are we going to talk to people who are not on the left, right? Mm. And I think that we deal with this question by sort of um, demonizing and scapegoating people who are not on the left, whether they be, like, centrist, like, lib types or whether they be, like, conservatives. Um, And we, especially conservatives and, like, anyone who's, like, more on the right side of things, we just, like, treat them as our enemies in this, like, very... I don't know. It's like a very, it's, I feel weird saying this, but it's like a very closed minded way where we dehumanize them and just see them as bad and as our enemies instead of looking for where we share class interests. Because a lot of these people, even if they're conservative or whatever, they're not fucking billionaires. They're not fucking capitalists. Oh, yeah, totally. They're regular working people, right? They're just regular working people. And in fact, they're on the same planet that we are on. They are also facing the same dire like dystopian nightmare that we are facing um and they also have human needs that we have and to go even further than that increasingly people who actively identify with the left tend to be more educated and more upper middle class and um so like the 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 historic association of the left with the lower earning um segment of the working class is is severed you know it's not that working class people are never leftists or anything but it's like it used to be way more cut and dry that like working people would identify on some level politically with their class interests you know yeah. and that is like really not the case anymore yeah so we have to be aware of that we totally. can't just pretend like that isn't true you know yeah yeah and so like i don't know for me like socialist dreaming it's like a lot of what this is about is like how do we how do we meet our needs, right? Like, how do we meet people's needs? Um, how do we make sure that everyone has what they need to survive and to thrive? And also, how do we save the planet from capitalist destruction? Um, and I actually see no reason why I can't have a conversation about that kind of stuff with a conservative. I think that the way I would go about having that conversation with a conservative would be probably different than if I was just going to have it with another socialist where we're sort of on the same page about what we mean by certain words. Um, But I think that there are ways where I could find a lot of common ground um, just based on our basic human needs and desires. And then we could talk about it, you know, and whatever. That's kind of like going on a bit of a tangent. But like, I'm just like, if we can't even talk to each other as leftists, how the fuck do we think we're ever going to be able to build alliances with a larger population of people who are not necessarily on the left already? And I guess, like, inside the nexus, we're just like, no, we're not. We're not going to do that. And then I'm like, okay, so how are we going to, <laughs> how are we going to achieve the goals that we have, you know? And I think that people don't ever consider that question. And I think, like, a basic sort of um, 
a basic idea behind a lot of leftist thought is that we achieve our goals through mass power. Um, and it kind of came up on a podcast interview um, that Jay and I were on recently on Rune Soup, where we were talking about this idea of mass power. And I don't know, but I think that like the interviewer sort of assumed when I was using the the phrase mass power that I kind of meant like, I don't know, armed insurrection or something, right. which I didn't mean um, because I'm like, I do understand that like the government and has a monopoly on like firepower. Um, but I'm like, you know, that basic idea that workers actually run the world, that workers are actually the ones doing all the work. And so therefore have power, which is just like a basic Marxist like idea. And it's like the basis of what unions are about. And I'm like, if we tap into that power as like the people who are literally creating all the profit for all of these billionaires who are flying around in space while the world burns, you know, like if we could actually consolidate that power together and we could have shared goals based on our shared interest, I do believe that we would have the power to change things, right? Absolutely. But we absolutely can't do that if we alienate, you know, large segments of the working class and refuse to talk to them and refuse to see them as our, you know, our comrades in struggle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that honestly, that leads us to the next bit, which is like, let's think about what nexus dreams look like often you know because like i said earlier it's not true that the nexus doesn't have dreams yeah it does and sometimes they're quite wild you know yeah actually often they're quite wild um and they're wild in a way that like you're like okay there's no way to achieve this why are you even saying it yeah. right and i think that that ties back to what i was saying about pessimism it's like yeah. because they don't actually believe that they're achievable totally so and if you don't believe that your political project has any chance of ever getting anywhere close to power, then you are free to just say whatever, like, literally crazy thing you think of um, and have that be your politics. But that isn't politics, right? That's fantasizing. Yeah. Um, And I don't know, like, I'm going to give an example. And this isn't – I'm not going to say that this is, like, a mainstream nexus position or whatever. It's a fringe one. Yeah. But it's it's one that I've seen versions of it bandied about, like, for years. So this person was saying – that, um, you know, like, white people shouldn't be allowed to, like, own houses yeah. um, because decolonization. Um, and I'm like, okay, so first of all, let's think about what that would actually look like to carry out. You right. would need to have a, a state of some sort that would pass a law saying that a racially categorized group of people would no longer be allowed to have houses. Um, and then you would need to enforce that somehow. Yeah. So you would need an armed group of people um, with guns to go around and, you know... Um, you know, I don't know, evict people who insisted that they did own their house and, right. like, you know, imprison people who protested against it. Right, and or whatever. have, like, racial checks on people trying to get mortgages. Yes, you, yeah, exactly. You would have to have a racial bureaucracy yeah. to make sure that people who want to get a house, like, aren't aren't white. You have to decide how to, like, define white, like, yeah. whatever. Like, there's so many, like, steps involved that would be um, horrifically authoritarian, like, very violent, would... Um, would hugely impoverish, like, the the large majority of the population. And um, would, like, naturalize race. Yeah, um, to an extent that we haven't seen for decades, yeah. you know. Um, it would obviously be a terrible idea on every level. Yeah. Um, and apart from all of that, um, you're talking about doing that to the majority population, right? And not only the majority, but the group that, um, in terms of, like, its collective wealth, has the largest percentage of the wealth and property. Um, so the most powerful ethnic group or like racial group if you want to put it that way so 
on that level too, it's like you're talking about something that would be so wildly unpopular. Yeah. Um, on on like every level, yeah. and not only among white people, right? Because like normal fucking people of every race would be like, literally, that's crazy. Yeah, totally. Um, that you would have to have like the most um, viciously brutal authoritarian regime imaginable to enforce it, right? And you would never be able to do it, basically. So the point is, like, why would you even present that as as a political opinion when it's unfeasible? Everyone would hate it. Um, and like it, it wouldn't even make anyone's fucking lives better. Yeah. And I think you're right. Like the reason that they present it as a political opinion, and this is true for like a lot of Nexus stuff is that they aren't, there's a way in which they're not being serious. Like it is more like a, an emotional exercise, um, than it is like a serious suggestion, you know? Right. Um, and there is no thinking through like how that would be carried out or even any of the things that you just mentioned, because it's not about that. And it's more about sort of, I don't know, performing, performing the right, like the right to suggest that other people should feel a lot of guilt and maybe hoping that like some nexus white people won't buy a house because they feel like they shouldn't or something like that. Yeah. And it's also part of this thing where people mistake like selective cruelty for radicalism where they're like, if you are able with a straight face to say something like really fucked up about a certain group of people, then you're like sufficiently radical. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. Honestly. Cause it's also like shock value too. It's just yeah. like, I'm going to say something like really intense and you have to like accept it. Otherwise, whatever. Totally. And in that way, it actually shares a lot of political terrain. Sorry, this is like a little bit of an aside, but I want to get into it for a second. It shares a lot of political terrain with the alt-right because the alt-right also wants to make an ethno state. Right. (laughs) Um, And they want to have like a fucking racial bureaucracy and they want to make it so that people be categorized by their race and then like denied the right to like own houses or like have a job or like live in a certain area or whatever on the basis of that. Um, And they want to have an authoritarian regime to enforce that um, through force of arms, right? So it's like you're actually like mimicking. You're just like this weird like mirror image of of white fascism. Um, yeah, just changing the identities around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so I mean, obviously that is like just one example, but there's many of these examples. Um, you know, even the like abolish the police now is is an example of this. It's a similar thing. Because it's like, there's no, and I mean, I am an abolitionist. Like I do believe that we need to do something other than police and prisons. Like, absolutely. Those are my politics. And at the same time, this like, this performative insistence of just like, you know, abolish the police now, like defund the police now, abolish the police now. It's like, okay. And then what? Right. Like we don't actually have any system in place to transition out of that. First of all, like, what are we replacing it with? I guess a lot of these people would say cancel culture, but they wouldn't call it that. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, what are we going to do instead? Um, what are we going to... Roaming transformative justice squads. Yeah, like something like that. <laughs> and it's like, you know, how are we going to... Um, how are we going to address the issues that are, like, contributing to crime, you know? And so that these kinds of things aren't happening. Um, how are we going to like intervene and de-escalate violent crimes? Which like there are answers to these questions, and there are lots of really great strategies that we can do to answer these things, right? Yeah. But often the people who are saying just like abolish the police aren't actually going into that or having that conversation. And I wish that they would because it would be a lot more generative. And like some people are for sure. Yeah, but- and like to be generous to the people that we're criticizing, like there are definitely people affiliated with um, 
I mean, the, the recent, like in the past two years, um, rise in like abolish the police rhetoric, rhetoric who do have thoughtful ideas about this thing. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying, though, is that, you know, if anyone were to sort of come and be like, okay, but like, how are we going to do that? Inside the Nexus, there's this... It would be hard to get a straight answer. And not just that, but there would be this hostility towards you. Yeah. That if you're asking that question, it's because you're a white supremacist. Like, if you're asking that question, it's because, you know, the only reason you would ask that question is because you love the police or something, right? Yeah. Um, and because of that, because there's, like, not um, a willingness to, like, engage in dialogue about it, then it just becomes like a performative soundbite, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we definitely saw a lot of that where like there are like, um, you know, communities where there's lots of crime and there's like racialized people in those communities being like, we actually don't want the police to leave because there's a lot of violent crime in our neighborhood. For sure, man. And then like a refusal of people who um, are really about this abolish the police stuff to like seriously engage with that and be like, okay, so then what else can we do to like help these communities? Like what would we need to fight for to reduce violent crime in these communities, which are bigger projects, which are like, we actually need socialism. Like we actually need people to have material security so that they don't need to commit crime in order to get their needs met. Totally, man. And in AA, we have this saying, um, uh, play the tape to the end, you know? And like with a lot of these ideas, like you have to play the tape to the end and be like, okay, like what would it literally look like to abolish the police in a country run by the fucking Democrats, by the Democrats and Amazon? Like what would that look like? Like imagine it, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, in a country where like people are so fucking alienated from one another that there's like these like mass school shootings every fucking week. And like, uh, I mean, people, people like are so antisocial and not, not just in the United States, but like in, in this continent, um, like it would be, f- horrifying um and also like you have to remember that like under capitalism we have a uh, okay i'm gonna step it back a little bit the police don't like prevent school shootings um the police like maybe mop it up after or whatever but the point is that like the kind of impulses that people have to like you know carry out these like antisocial behaviors and stuff would like remain so let's just remember that first and foremost right and then you have to remember the fact that um, under capitalism, there is still going to be this like class of people who own a whole bunch of property and don't want it to be fucked with by fucking poor people. Yeah. So they would have their own private security, right? Right. And this private security would be like even less accountable than yeah. the police are because they don't, you know, they don't depend on like public funding for their budgets and whatever, right? They'd literally just be like owned by private capitalists. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you play that tape to the end, you're like, okay, so uh, what we need is a socialist movement in this continent to start working on some of the issues that, you know, that, that underlie, um, the whole thing we're talking about. Like we need, I mean, like I sometimes just pointing it out, but like we need, you know, like social services that make it so that like people living in poverty are not like pushed to the fucking very brink of survival and end up, um, committing, you know, these like crimes of, um, of survival. We need to, like, decrease the amount of alienation that people are experiencing so that it becomes more unthinkable to more people to commit violent crime to one another, you know? Um, we need to have realistic options for, like, of what to do with people, you know, as a society if they are these sort of, like, repeatedly violent people who, like, are really, you know, hurting other people around them. Like, what do we what do we do yeah. about that, like, socially, you know? Yeah, and these are serious questions, and it's like, I'm really committed to those questions. Like, I deeply oppose prisons and police at and the current way that we address, I mean, a lot of crime shouldn't even be crime. And then like, there are like things that we have to do about violent crime, but like the way that we do it is, is really awful. Um, 
but I just think that like, unfortunately, all of these complex um, questions and discussions and ideas often, not always, get like squashed to a soundbite clip, right? And I do think that there are, especially on the like abolish the police question, like I do think that there are like a lot of people who have been trying to like seriously grapple with these things. For and, sure. And simultaneously inside the nexus, there's this like sort of um, snap reaction, um, which is very absurd because like what it what it creates is all of these people sort of um, taking on that politics like in a very shallow and insincere way. Like you have yeah. all of these like, you know, people just being like abolish the police. Yeah, because like they don't want to get in trouble for not saying that. But they have no actual like commitment or connection to those ideas because they actually haven't thought about them. Mm-hmm. Like they don't know what it would mean to abolish the police. And they're discouraged to think about it. Yeah. And so like I want people to think about it. I actually want people to be having like really intense um, conversations at all levels, you know, to think about how in real time right now we could avoid calling the police, like having communities discuss, like how are they going to deal with like shit in their communities without relying on police. And also like moving towards the larger question of how we can do this on like, you know, a large scale of actually transitioning away from police. But anyway, that was like a giant tangent. Um, (laughs) yeah. In contrast, ever since Marx, um, there's been, you know, a, a very strong tradition on the socialist left of uh, materialism. So the idea is just that, like, if you want to talk about anything, you better have, like, a good understanding of how um, it relates to the real world, the actually existing conditions under under which we all live, right? And so when we're talking about socialist dreaming, we are really talking about dreams that are I mean, they can be big dreams, you know, they can be, they can be talking about radical, profound changes, but they're materially achievable on some level, right? Um, there are steps that can be taken by real people living in the real world to get there. And I guess like an important piece that I just want to highlight, because it's not that we're saying that abolish the police is not a material, like that that materially couldn't be achieved, right? right, right, right like right. I do believe that it could be. And we um, both want that. Yeah. But I think what I want to point out is that there's actually like a weird hostility in the nexus to asking how. Right. Right. And the how is very important. And when you're doing like the dreaming part of things, you don't necessarily have the answers to how, like, and that's fine. Like you don't have to have the answers to how it's going to happen to suggest the dream. Right. Because sometimes you can just start with the dream to like motivate people to like do the hard work of figuring out the how and getting there is the hardest part. Like actually figuring that out, especially given, you know, the circumstances that we're under is extremely, extremely hard. But like what is really um, troublesome about the nexus is that any sort of, you know, questioning, disagreement, like concern, um, nuance, whatever that that is given in response to some of these large suggestions that the Nexus puts forward, is very often shut down with a huge amount of hostility. Um, And it basically is just saying, this is the way that it has to be, and if you even have any questions about it, you're, like, fucked up, right? Mm. And that is the problem, because it's, like, it's fine to have, like, big dreams. And in some of these cases, I would totally back them. In others, I would be like, okay, no, I don't agree with that big dream, but, Mm. like... You know, like, let's talk about it, right? For sure. And it's like, if you want to abolish the police in your country, you're going to need a mass consensus 
about that. You're going to need people to be fucking on board. And you're going to need people who currently think that you're a fucking loon um, to be on board. Yeah. A loon? Is that a thing? It's, it's a like thing. A it's a weird... Uh, yeah. <laughs> a loon. A loon. <laughs> Um, you need them to be on board, right? You're going to need people who currently identify as like fucking like Republicans to yes. to agree with you at some point in the future and be part of your political project. Which is why this hostility towards people asking questions or disagreeing or whatever and this like sort of, you know, reliance on like, you know, censorship and force and coercion that the that the nexus uses, it just doesn't make sense and it actually reveals that like a lot of these dreams, they don't have any intention of ever having them come to fruition. For sure. Because I don't know how they're planning on getting that if they are actively... Um, like pushing away. Pushing away most people from the cause that they're trying to put forth. For sure. And also, like, you know, a good a good socialist dream um, is demonstrably good for the majority of people. Exactly. You know? Um, you, exactly. You can convince people to be sort of like on your team if you can show them that what you're proposing intersects with their interests. Yes. And so like, you know, a huge way that the nexus functions is through like guilt and shame, right? It's constantly saying to people, you're privileged and this issue doesn't affect you, but you should care about it to be a good person. Right. Right. Um, And that's going to work for some people. Yeah. But in reality... Especially when you're saying that along with, and we want you to give up the things that you do have. Right. Right? Which often is the case. Yeah. Give up your privileges to help other people. Well, people have their own material interests. And it's actually not bad that people have their own material interests. It's perfectly normal that people have their basic material interests at heart. Right? Um, And so we need to actually be connecting with those and we need to actually be asking the question, how can we, you know, frame this in such a way that people can see the way that it benefits them? Yeah, totally. Right? Totally. Because, yeah, like, you know, guilting and shaming somebody, you know, it's like I said, it's going to work on some people. Um, it clearly has worked on enough people for us to have the nexus, you know. Yeah. But it's never going to work on people who already have a well-developed sense of their own interests and a well-developed sense of their own political opposition to your project. Yeah. And even the people that it does work on, like it works on them in, in often in a very shallow way yeah, totally. where they're just performing and they're saying the sound bites, but they don't actually understand why they're really for this beyond that they don't want to get into trouble. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know, I would like to approach things differently in a way that one really encourages people to think about their own material interests and to see that their own material interest is not at odds with the material interests of other people. Yes. I think that that is a basic socialist idea. Yes. That, in fact, we have shared interests as human beings, um, as animals living on this planet, and therefore we actually do have the capacity to work together to meet all of our needs. And we have shared interests as people who do not own the means of production. Exactly. Yeah. As people who are being exploited by capitalism. Um, And so there's that. And then also, like, I don't think that it's wrong or bad to, um, to encourage people to connect with their empathy or their sense of solidarity. Like, I think that those are qualities that people have that are good and are positive. And a lot of people really do enjoy doing things that are good for other people or that benefit some people more than it personally benefits them, Mm -hmm. right? But I think that approaching those people by being like, 
I see the worst in you and I'm coercing you into connecting with your empathy instead of being like, I actually see the best in you and I believe that that you want to be empathetic, right? Like, I don't know. I think that people will respond better to that and they respond better when they're treated as collaborators and when they're in- welcomed in as opposed to being like, you know, shamed and scolded. Yeah, for sure. So like instead of, you know, proposing that white people aren't allowed to own homes, um, maybe we could propose that no one is ever homeless again in the entire continent. You know, that is um, something that is materially beneficial to everyone. If everyone gets a home, that's good <laughs> for everyone, you know? Yeah. Obviously, you have to get around people's sort of like knee-jerk reactions to the idea of like the government doing anything good for anybody. But um, yeah, like that is a more useful path to take. And it means since everyone is not going to be housed, it means that, um, let's say, indigenous people um, will also be part of the situation in which no one is ever going to be homeless again. Yeah. Right? We eliminate indigenous homelessness. Yeah. By eliminating homelessness. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. And so, I mean, that, you know, that's like a sort of classic, like, universalist take, but that's um, something that socialism is good at, right? Um, and we also wanted to talk about the sort of, like, libertarian, like, left libertarian or, like, anarchist angle on all of this, right? Because I think that anyone who's been around the left, um, you know, has had run-ins with these Marxist-Leninist sects or, like, small groups or whatever that can have very, very rigid and dogmatic um, beliefs of their own, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And they have, you know, democratic centralism, which is this idea that you, you know, you take a vote on positions and you have free debate first, but then you take a vote and then once the vote is taken, everyone has to agree with that position or risk being expelled from the party, right? Um, And since disagreement is natural and is always going to happen, and since a lot of the time these debates, like the debates over the issues are about, you know, kind of these like esoteric, um, theoretical perspectives within Marxism um, that people can have lots of different opinions on, it means that they're constantly splitting these groups, right? Which is why in the United States there's like, you know, 30 different like Trotskyist groups. And in Canada, there's probably about the same. Um, And we don't have any unity on like the communist left, like even remotely, right? Um, And, you know, I think that this is you know, there, there, there's good reasons for democratic centralism as a political tactic and like a revolutionary party. Um, you know, you, you want everyone to have the same sort of like line so that you could present that line to the people that you're trying to convince or whatever. Like, I understand that completely. However, as um, conditions change in the world, sometimes it becomes necessary to not be um, emulating the tactics of a Russian revolutionary party a hundred years ago, you know? Um, And I think that, you know, the left today in Canada is not the same as the left in Europe a hundred years ago. And we, we need to like roll with bunches a little bit. First of all, the second thing is that like, yeah, we like Clementine and I come from an anarchist philosophical background for sure. And, um, when we think about these things, like we, we, we believe that like free debate and ongoing debate, um, is like a good thing. And now of course there's like, there's the issue that if people are just talk, 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 talking forever, um, and never leading to anything, um, um, material and useful, that's like an issue on its own for sure. Like it's a huge issue. Yeah. But um, we do think that like the principle of free debate um, and and like a sort of like public sphere of the exchange of ideas um, is a useful thing, not just for like 
liberal society, but for a future socialist society as well, and for the left in general. Um, we need to be able to discuss ideas, and we need to be able to bounce ideas off of each other, and we need to be able to use our full capacity of our brains, as Clementine was, was mentioning earlier, to really try to like get get the best out of them that we can, you know? And if we're just like stuck um, repeating a tired party line that like a previous generation of communist activists came up with, you know, in the eighty in the eighties or whatever, as like our main sort of like political belief. I mean, it's not very appealing to most people, and also it's like, well, listen, like I'm not, I'm not trying to be a Bolshevik. Yeah, like I'm just not. You know, like that's I don't I don't. It's not that I don't care what the Bolsheviks thought, but I'm not a Bolshevik. You know, I live in fucking Canada, um, and. And honestly, like the whatever kind of like socialism we end up building in North America, it's going to look different from from the socialism that they built in the Soviet Union, right? And I mean, it's important to remember that there has never been a really socialist government in a highly developed capitalist Western country before. It hasn't happened yet, yeah. right? So we don't know what it would look like. Yeah. Um, and there's also never been a socialist government. Um, like a of like a big developed country that had access to like the internet or supercomputers or you know um, Harvard, right? Like that's never happened. We don't know how fucking amazing it could be. Um, and I guess that was a bit of a tangent too. But all that to say that like the principle of free debate is really important. And as anarchists or people from an anarchist philosophical background, we want to. Um, really underline that point. Yeah, and so, like, I don't know, like, these little leftist groups that you're talking about, um, I think one thing that they share in common with with the Nexus is that there's, like, this insistence that people agree, that people agree on everything, right? This idea that, like, here are the beliefs that we have and we agree on them, right? And, And you need to agree on them in order to be a part of this group. And I think that, like, true, like, mass power type of socialism, like if we're trying to really build mass power and work with lots and lots of people, we literally have to be willing to work with people who do disagree with us. We are not going to find consensus on every single thing, right? Absolutely not. It's not possible. However, we are going to be able to find consensus or the goal should be to find consensus, enough consensus to move forward, right? And there's this, um, there's this, I don't know, it's probably in one of his books, but I saw it in an interview with David Graeber, um, and it's one of the things that I that always struck me about, like the idea of doing anarchism well and doing consensus well. Um, is he talks about that, like in in true like in societies that are truly based on consensus and where there is like ample room for people to take like to participate and to like have their views considered, and they know that that's true, and they know that they're going to be welcomed to you know, these meetings to discuss these things and that they do have a say, right? That there is less of a um, imperative to, like, have a say about every fucking thing, right? You're actually more willing to let go and to compromise when you know that when it really, really matters, you can you can have your say, mm. you know, and that your say is going to have weight, right? Mm. Um, and I think, like, so much of the time, I don't know, like, an example of consensus building that I have experience with is in business meetings in 12-step programs. Right. 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 Yeah, totally. And it can be super annoying, right? Because you're sitting there and you're listening to people debate about something that maybe you think is really inconsequential or maybe it's something you really care about and there's people that have really opposing views 
And, you know, they're basically trying to find the group conscience, right? Which is, like, at least they need to get a majority vote, ideally come to some kind of consensus, right? Um, And there's always these people who literally can't let anything go, right? Who need it to be exactly the way that they want it to be, and they're not willing to compromise on anything, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, like, building true consensus is always a process of compromise, right? It's never going to be 100% what you want because it's not about what you want. It's a collective thing, right? And so you're trying to find the will of the collective, which is hopefully going to include a little piece of what everybody wants, but it's not going to be one person's singular vision, right? Um, And so I don't know. I would just love to see and encourage, you know, like even starting from where we are right now, so much more of this like collective discussion happening where we are strategizing together, where we are dreaming together, where we are imagining together, where we are like coming up with ideas for like what next steps could be, right? Um, and there is um, an author who Jay and I really both love called Kim Stanley Robinson, and he wrote a lot of good books, but he wrote the Mars trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in those books, like it's about um, terraforming Mars and like building a society on Mars, but there's all of these examples of, like, these, like, conferences and these, like, big group think tanks that they do where people come together, like, tons of people come together. Some are experts in their fields, and then there's just, like, regular people there, too, and there's, like, you know, people with, like, philosophical ideas and spiritual ideas and scientific ideas and just all sorts of ideas, and they come together to, like, rigorously discuss various social and political issues that are facing them, right? Right. And they just, like, deeply discuss. But, like, it's not just an open-ended discussion that's going nowhere. Like, the idea is is to, like, make a decision at yeah, the end, right? To hammer out, like, a constitution for yeah, Mars. Or, exactly. Like, um, these yeah. sort of, like, big agreements under which they're going – or, like, yeah, under which they're going to run their society. Exactly. And so it's, like, I don't know. Like, even on, like, smaller scales, I would love to see more of that where we are getting together to, like, generatively and actively think together and to imagine and to be, like, what do we want, right? And – And to actually approach each other in this way where it's like, instead of being like, okay, me and this person, we don't agree on something very fundamental to both of us. So now this person is my enemy, right? Instead of that being like, how can we find a way to like get to the heart of why we both want the thing that we want, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because ultimately I really believe that we want the things that we want because we're trying to meet our needs in some ways, right? And this is where I become, this is where I put on my little therapist hat. But I'm like, you know, people are trying to get their needs met and they they believe the things that they believe because they think that is the best way to get their needs met, right? And so if you disagree with the, the strategies that they have for getting their needs met, but you do so in a way that fundamentally um, honors the need, Right? And is committed to meeting the need and is just curious about other ways that that need might be met that, for example, maybe don't take away from other people's needs. Um, You might get more results, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's this idea that um, comes out of, like, a type of therapy called emotionally focused therapy that's for couples. And it's based in attachment theory. Um, And it basically says, like, when couples are in an argument together... They should both look at, you know, the issue as 
what as the enemy or like as what they're trying to solve. And so it's both of them against the issue instead of them against each other, right? Right. right. And I actually think that that same framework would be so great for political um, discussions where it's like, okay, um, you know, we both have like really profoundly different ideas about things like how to make sure that I'm going to like have food tonight, right? Like a conservative is going to have really different ideas about the best way of going about that. Like a conservative idea is going to be like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work hard, right? Um, Whereas I'm going to be like, you know, we need like a massive like infrastructure to meet people's needs. Um, But both of the, the heart of it is still the same need, which is that I want to be sure that I have something to eat tonight, right? For sure. And sometimes, yeah, the the trick is to actually identify the need, right? Because Mm -hmm. people are so caught up in their like culture war or whatever it is yeah. that they don't know what the need is. Right? Yeah. And sometimes, lost it. yeah. And sometimes socialists can really like help, um, identify the need, you know, I think a good example is with like, um, very like religious people. Right. Um, and I think that socialists, at least socialists that I like <laughs> can do a good job of, of pointing out to people that the sense of like, meaning and purpose that they get from a spiritual tradition helps them um, combat alienation. And if you can explain to somebody what alienation is, and you can explain to them that capitalism is responsible for the alienation that they're experiencing in their society, then I think that you can help them get to the root of like why, um, like why they feel the need to, let's say advocate for a, like um, for a, a very religious society or something like that, you know, you know, the reason why somebody might want that is because they sense the the deep meaninglessness and alienation that is produced by capitalism, right? And there's this weird thing in the United States and, and throughout a lot of the West where, you know, um, Christian, like very relig- religious Christians are often allied politically with capitalists um, right. in these various conservative movements. But they're odd bedfellows because capitalism is what is producing the conditions um, of alienation that the spiritual beliefs are helping to alleviate, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, maybe maybe there's a reason why they're stuck together like that. And when you when you put it that way, but you can definitely, I think, get through to a lot of religious people um, with a thoughtful explanation of how capitalism is producing that alienation and that meaninglessness and is like stripping meaning from important cultural traditions that people hold dear, right? Like conservatives in general are reacting to that stripping away of tradition and of meaning. Um, but they're reacting in this disjointed way because they don't have an economic understanding that helps them make sense of it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but capitalism is the process by which, um, you know, Christmas is turned into this, like, god-awful, um, you know, spectacle of, of plastic and tinsel and, and these, like, sort of um, interminable remakes of old Christmas carols and whatever, um, that like, if you're like a deeply religious person who believes that, that Christmas is supposed to be about, um, the, you know, the birth of the savior of human, of humankind, mm-hmm. um, then that, that's like an awful grating experience yeah, to see that. And you like know? Mary giving birth in a manger and shit like this. Yeah. Like that's like a totally different vibe, you know, like she's literally has no place to go and has to give birth in a manger. Like I actually see so much potential there for, anti-capitalist for sure imagining for sure right so i think there's like angles there's angles that socialists can use um to to show people that our interests are actually similar right yeah and that 
the interests of capital are opposed to the interests of regular people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so basically, yeah, we just really want to encourage people to like start having these conversations, like wherever they are and in whatever capacity to actually start to feel a sense of responsibility towards the future and towards each other and towards the worlds that we want to build. Even if we don't have all the answers, even if we are just like, you know, have a piece of it or we have thoughts or we have like, you know, if we talk to each other and we actually engage in like meaningful generative conversation, we might be able to figure out a lot more about what the fuck we should be doing. Yeah, totally. Um, so let's talk about our dreams, Clementine. Let's talk about our dreams, sure. Um, so one thing that, you know, me and Clementine have talked about fucking over and over and over again is how we need like a, a kind of like unified, holistic, um, I call it physio-psychosocial healthcare. Um, and so, or like you could even call it like wellness care or something, you know, like mm-hmm. to borrow a term from the wellness influencers. Um, <laughs> they did not come up with the word wellness. Yeah, I don't know, I'm joking. But, but basically like our healthcare system, okay, I'm not even going to get into America right now, but our healthcare system in Canada, you know, it varies from province to province. In Quebec, it's like, I don't know, if you like break your leg, you will get, you know, a top-notch broken leg treatment, right? But if you have like any kind of issue that's a bit less like dramatic, um, and that, you know, is, is kind of complicated and long and, 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 you know, something like, uh, an autoimmune disorder or like, um, you know, your, your stomach has been bothering you and you can't figure out why or whatever. It'll take you fucking months to see a doctor or yeah. years even. And I mean, I've mentioned um, it on the podcast before, but even to get a cancer biopsy, it takes like two months. Right. And, and this is the result, not of like socialized healthcare not working, but of socialized healthcare being defunded over a, pro- over a period of like 50 years by conservative forces. Um, you know, fiscally conservative. I mean, a lot of them were like liberal governments, but um, you know, these various governments were like, man, we're really spending a lot on this healthcare thing. We're going to like cut funding. Just recently, the government of Quebec uh, announced $150, $150 million would be cut from the healthcare system in the middle of a fucking pandemic. Um, and they're justifying this by saying that, oh, like, we've uh, really perfected, like, um, Zoom doctors. So we're going to have, like, more Zoom doctors and uh, less less real doctors. Like, really terrifying. You know what I mean? It's, like, it's, like fucking awful. But um, the point is that, like, this is, like, a really haphazard fucking healthcare system. And also one that and, – and this is true, I think, in all of the Western world – maybe all the entire world, um, it's one where holism, like the idea that, you know, the entire society that you live in, the entire world that you live in is related to your entire health and your entire body um, is completely lacking from this medical model, right? Um, And I don't get into this just so I can, like, have an excuse to be woo. I get into this for, like, sound... Um, kind of like fiscal reasons even too. And I think it's pretty clear mm-hmm. to everyone that a healthy population, like a population that's already healthy, is going to access healthcare less, right? It, like emergency healthcare, I mean. They're going to be showing up in the ER complaining of like liver failure less if they don't have the conditions that are leading them to liver failure or whatever it yeah, is, right? Yeah, like absolutely. Like compare like, you know, the cost of preventative medicine and like things like, you know, biopsies or even more so like, giving people what they need to have like a fully healthy lifestyle, which is going to decrease their chances of having cancer in the first place, but also preventative medicine and, and things like biopsies versus like, you know, finding out about it late and having like chemotherapy, right? Like obviously it is preferable that it is prevented altogether or caught early for the person. And if you want to look at it in a 
you know, cold hard dollars kind of way, it is also way fucking cheaper. Yeah. And one's physical health, we are starting more and more to understand, is also related to one's mental health. And even I would say to one's spiritual health, but that's like far more difficult to like measure in any sort of like, you know, scientific metric. I mean, I think that it is measurable. Yeah. I mean, there's probably ways that you could sort of come up with a scale for people's like sort of spiritual wellness or whatever. But, you know, it's it's more difficult to be objective about. But the point is that um, people's, you know, mental health, their like physical health, if you want to call it that, their spiritual health, and also even you could say their like social health, like sort of like how... Uh, well-connected they are to the um, resources in their society that keep people, you know, safe and supported. Um, All those things combine to create your sort of, like, overall situation of wellness. And it's my belief, and I mean, I'm not the only one, um, that your your overall wellness is maybe the most valuable thing that you can have, like, as, as like, a being. Yeah. Right? Um, And so I think that it's completely acceptable to say that our society should be collectively pouring an enormous amount of resources into maintaining that for people because it's one of the most important things that anyone can have. Of right? course. And so when we're talking about the cost of like healthcare, I mean, to me, I'm like, we should be, we should be paying just like astronomical amounts for this as a society and it's, it will be completely worth it. And so one of the ways that that could look, I think, since we're on the topic of socialist dreaming um, is what if when you were born, you were signed up, for, um, you know, a family doctor, a um, therapist, a social worker, and, you know, like a counselor. Um, and, I mean, I, I, it's, it doesn't have to be exactly like literally when you're born, you know what I mean? But the point being that everyone has that automatically as like a right, right? Like a constitutionally yeah. guaranteed right um, that you have access to those professionals and that that's like completely normal yeah you know you don't have to fucking sign up for it it's yeah. it's automatically provided to you by your society because everyone should have that yeah absolutely i mean like having like holistic health care i'm i think like we set our standards so low because we i mean saying we as talking about canada right now like because we're like beside the united states and they don't have health care at all we're like wow we have such great health care here because we literally have health care but i'm like no we literally don't have good health care here like we strongly do not have everything that we need and like i was saying about dental earlier like the idea that you can just lose all your teeth <laughs> and that's fine is like literally fucking absurd right yeah the idea that you have to pay for glasses when you can't see is absurd like right. Right. that is absolutely absurd people literally need to be able to see like and they they can't afford their glasses like it's absurd so like the things like dental things like you know, vision care, obviously things like our meds are not covered. Um, I guess maybe here there's like, like RAMQ is like a bit more you pay like, yeah. RAMQ covers like most of the cost of medication in Quebec for people who aren't insured through their jobs, Yeah, but not for all medication Yeah, and um, in, and not all of the cost either. And there isn't RAMQ in Ontario. Right. So like basically meds are, not covered um, if, if you don't have some kind of insurance. And so it's like, yeah, obviously, what is the point of going to a doctor and finding out that you need these meds if you can't then access the meds, right? Mm. Um, and then, yeah, like I think what Jay was saying, like the idea of it being way more holistic, um, actually having, you know, 
if I'm going to, like, socialist dream, I'm like, people need access to fucking massages. They need access to, like, a fucking people's spa where they can go and fucking truly relax their nervous systems and be chill so that they don't have chronic health conditions. Yeah, agree. You know? Agreed. Um, also, like, people should not be, you know, stressing over paying their, their rent. Like, all of this contributes to health. And I think that, like, the idea that a society should take care of people's health is just, like, a basic socialist idea. Yep. Um, and so what if we had, like, this really comprehensive kind of health care where you could go and you could get your needs met, where we had, like, trauma-informed therapy that was, like, really up-to-date with the current science and was, like, really, really accessible to anyone who might need it. Um, where we had, like, alternatives to, like, psych wards so that people who are in distress have, like, a safe place to go and to be taken care of and to take a break from their life. Yep. And what if the pharmaceutical industry was um, directed by the society? I mean, in this case, you know, we're talking about via the government um, to look into the things that are most important for the people living in that society rather than the things that would be most profitable for a private corporation to pursue. Right? What if? Yeah, and, like, truly, like, abolishing the profit motive for medicine is, like, absolutely fucking... An imperative. An imperative. And, like, I'm just a slight COVID tangent. Like, you know, the fact of the matter is is that we already knew about these types of viruses, um, and the fact that there wasn't already, like, a vaccine basically ready to go is because the idea of, like, a possible outbreak of one of these things is not a sure... Like, it's not a sure thing, mm-hmm. right? Whereas, like, there's other types of medical research that people can do that they're definitely going to make a profit on. Yeah. But with this, it's like they might or they might not. And so there wasn't a huge incentive for people to do that research yeah. financially, right? And then yeah. look where we where that that led us to be quite underprepared when this happened. And so the idea, like, that medicine should be about anything other than trying to do Research in service of people's health is literally absurd and crazy. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so another major thing is our environment and um, climate catastrophe and the idea of eco-socialism. So again, like I really think that we have been like coerced into accepting like tiny scraps of like what we should actually be demanding, right? Yes. Um, the idea that the fucking prime minister can say that they're building a fucking pipeline f- in service of fighting climate change is is just so crazy that we could even accept that on any level, you know? Yeah. Um, and, like, our socialist dreams, we talk about this all the time, but it's like if we took climate change seriously and we had, like, massive, um, massive, massive, massive investment into shifting from away from fossil fuels being like, we're not fucking taking anything else out of the ground. That's illegal now. Sorry. Um, and now we're moving towards like renewable energy on like a mass scale where we're like, you know, employing people to do this work where we're like transitioning to this type of energy. And also where we're doing like massive, massive, massive ecological restoration projects. Um, and I actually think that this is like one of my favorite socialist dreams, this idea that like we could as a society have like a deep connection to the biomes in which we live, as well as like a global understanding of ecology and in which people in our local communities could be involved in restoration projects that are going on where we are like doing planting and like, you know, ecological surveys and cleanups and like all of these things to help assist the repair of our ecology, which has been, like, so severely damaged by capitalism. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can imagine, like, schools 
where like they are taught all about their biome where like they go out and they like identify like the flowers and the plants and the different um, it should be a class like you should yeah alongside the other classes that you take you should have a class where you're learning um to identify yeah like the organisms that live in your in your biome yeah and not just that but for like your school projects you're like actually actively taking part in like rewilding projects you know mm-hmm. um and you at from a young age are like encouraged to have this sense of responsibility to the land where you live um and you know the nightmare of climate apocalypse is like something that we talk about as like this horrifying time when we weren't taking this seriously and then and then we woke up and started to take it seriously and everybody took up their responsibility and felt like pride in like taking part in this like massively important work right and i can also imagine like you know however jobs are structured in this um socialist dreaming that we're doing that there would be like um, the opportunity for, like, all regular people to, like, take time off of whatever work that they do to go and do shifts um, for, like, periods of time in these restoration projects mm-hmm. where they're, like, usually, you know, I do this for work. But right now, I have for the last four months, I've been, like, involved in this, like, massive, like, restoration project of, like, this wetland near where I live. Yeah, or definitely anybody who wants one should be able to get a job doing wildlife restoration. Yeah. You know, like, immediately. You just, like, walk into a government recruiting office and they fucking ship you up to... Uh, to like yellow knife to plant trees or whatever, you know? Yeah. And so I would love to see this kind of thing like vastly embedded into our society where like we take it really seriously, where we feel a sense of like belonging to like the ecology in which we live um, and in which like the government is fully not just like barely keeping up with the, um, you know, the numbers that we have decided is not going to make the world totally on fire. I mean, the world literally is currently on fire. But, like, way beyond that, where we're, like, we need to scale this back and we need to restore, right? Yeah. I also think, like, similar to the pharmaceutical industry, like, we could, if we wanted to, we could direct academic research um, within our, our institutions of higher learning um, towards certain issues, right? And there's a variety of ways that you can imagine that taking place. But, you know, um, actually, one interesting thing is that I, I heard, I can't confirm this, but I heard that in Japan, um, generally, like, the director of a like a department in a university picks the research um, projects of the grad students and, and other um, researchers within that department. So it's like one guy picks it. So I mean, that's, you know, shocking to people in the West where it's like when you're a grad student, you like pick, you pick your right. own research, generally speaking, or you like, you find the researcher who's doing research that you also want to do and you work with him. Right. Um, but you know, all this to say just that there, there are, alternative models um, where you could have directed research, right? And I think that um, directing, like, technical research into the issue of green energy and specifically, like, green energy that is, you know, minimally invasive to the environment and so on um, should be are, are the most major priority of all technical research that we could be doing in the society. And, you know, you, you have to remember that we that, like research is something that there's like a limited like supply of you could put it that way because there's a limited number of people who are like apt to do it and who are like you know in a position to be doing it although we could increase that that number yeah, by having could. um you know even more accessible education but there is like a limited you know population of of people who could do technical research let's say um and most of them are caught up uh they're sucked up by capital um, in order to research things that literally don't fucking matter and that that we shouldn't care about literally at all. Like, you know, they're building, I don't know, fucking uh, fridges that turn transparent when you clap twice or whatever, right? Like, just shit like this that is just like, it, it's, it's completely fucking meaningless, has no bearing on 
um, our progress as a society and should be like immediately abolished as, as like a program of research, right? Yeah, and we could like highly incentivize in various ways and prioritize in various ways research that is towards the collective goal of like reversing climate change and like restoring ecological health to the planet. Yeah, absolutely. And then we get to the topic of like housing, right? Like it is obviously completely insane that in a, you know, developed country with like lots of land and like na 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 that there's such a thing as people who are homeless, like not through choice, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's a crazy, that's a crazy scenario. Um, homelessness has been increasing. Um, it's getting worse and worse. Um, the, the price of a house in Canada, if you want to like own a house, um, is currently astronomical in all major cities. Um, you know, most like millennials have just completely given up on the idea of ever being able to own their own house. Um, and so everyone's renting, rent is also going up and, um, people can easily just be like kicked out. It's a little bit harder in Quebec to kick people out, but in other provinces it's pretty easy to just kick a tenant out and then you can just be fucked. Right. Um, and so there's people who don't have homes and there's also people who, for whatever reason are, you know, functional at a level where it becomes very difficult for them to maintain, um, all, all the different sort of like tasks that people need to maintain under capitalism in order to, you know, pay rent and, 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 and have a job and all this kind of thing. Um, and they can also end up being homeless. So, um, I think that it's obvious to anyone who cares about fucking human beings that we should abolish homelessness somehow. Right. Um, I think that there are a lot of different models. Um, but one that is being considered seriously by, you know, um, the capital of a major capitalist country, Germany, um, is that the city can literally just appropriate um, tens of thousands of housing units from large landlords um, by saying that, you know, it, it is uh, an emergency and we need these units and um, you'll be, like, compensated at, like, a price that we decide because we're the fucking government. Yeah. Um, and sorry, you're not, you don't own these units anymore. Yeah, you don't get to hoard housing when people are homeless. Sorry. Yeah, no, the city owns them. Um, and so, like, you can literally just do that. And I think that people don't, really realize that like you could just do that yeah like it would be difficult um obviously you would have to like fight a lot um against like reactionary forces and like no 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 but since we are dreaming about like a you know a government that is um you know controlled on some level by a socialist movement um yeah you could just be like sorry um you're not allowed to hoard housing yeah you're not allowed to hoard housing that's not a thing that happens anymore here. yeah you know, exactly. It's and, something that we've abolished. Yeah, and like huge investments into public housing. Um, so that is just considered. I mean, I often think that like in the same way that like for Canadians, it's like horrific to imagine not having health care. Like, and, and we see it as like really horrifying the idea that somebody could be, you know, have cancer or something. And then people are like, well, you have to pay money and we're not going to help you. Yeah. It's the exact same thing with housing. It's just that we have been. Conditioned. conditioned to accept this. But the idea, I mean, you know, we have like horrible cold winters here, right? The idea that somebody is supposed to just be outside, mm-hmm. um, the idea that they don't have a place to go or like maybe they can go to like an overcrowded shelter, like that's inhumane and, and horrifying, right? So like the idea that housing is just a basic human right, I think is like really um, a basic part of socialism. Um, and then, yeah, like other things like, how we design our cities. Um, I think there's like a, a lot of really beautiful things that we could imagine to change the ways that cities are designed. So like right now cities are like highly organized around cars. Um, and like 
pedestrians and cyclists are like constantly being hit by cars. Um, <laughs> but also just like forced out of the majority of public space. Yeah. There's like, a really good um, image that this artist made. And it's just these like like these images of the city, but like instead of the road, it's just like a pit. Yeah. Like going down into infinity or whatever, and there's people just sort of like creeping along the sides of buildings on these sidewalks. But it you know it helps you imagine like or helps you visualize the fact that like all of public space is just taken up by cars. Totally, right? and so we could totally reimagine um, the designs of cities, and but I would like to reimagine them in such a way that one, it is like. Um, it is organized around like public transit and around cyclists and around pedestrians. It decenters cars in a massive way. It's also organized in such a way that is like practical and makes sense for like community buildings. So like um, there's like I mean we have community centers as like an entirely separate topic, but like we have like community centers and like neighborhoods um, and like public spaces for people to like gather and like be together and like community gardens where people can just go and garden and like get free food. Um, and also organizing cities with wildlife and ecology and, um, you know, fighting climate change in mind. So like huge investment into like regreening our cities and having like you know, wildlife corridors and, like, just, like, massive um, plants everywhere. <laughs> massive plants everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, none of these, like, parks that are just grass. Like, what a waste of space. Like, we need, at the very least, we need clovers there. We need fucking flowers for the bees, you know? And if we imagine space, you know, outside of the interest of capital and instead in the interest of the people who live here... And the ecology. Actually, um, Kim Stanley Robinson drops it in, like, casually in uh, the yeah. Walsh trilogy that, like, and he never, like, explains it, but he just drops it in casually, which I think is hilarious. But, like, um, instead of streets, they have, like, grass. Right. Like, in, in the towns that they build, you know? Right. Um, so when you're walking from one place to another, you're walking on, like, plants. Yeah. Right? You gotta have plants everywhere because if we want to get this carbon out of the atmosphere, right? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of really really interesting urban planning stuff i want to like super super duper quickly get into my like pet uh urban planning issue which is this just that i think that like the the way that um cities especially like the outskirts of cities are set up are like psychologically um horrifying and i think that you know the fact that you um like think about like being outside in the winter in canada at night um for those of you who have never experienced the winter in canada at night like you if you aren't like dressed really, really well, you, you can die like within like literally like minutes. Um, and even if you are dressed well, you could get like, you know, frostbite and stuff within like a couple of hours. Right. So imagine that. And then imagine that you're like on the outskirts of some like urban center. And it's just like these like, you know, big concrete blocks separated by like a fucking 20 minute walk. Um, along the side of like a bleak, like deserted highway. And like, that is what we've done with our cities, you know, like these are not places built for human beings, right? They're, they're places built for capital. They're places built, um, to store the products of capital and then like have workers come in from like a different location to like yeah. manipulate them and then leave again. And everything has to be done with these privately owned vehicles. Right. Um, and on some level, I think people understand that that is like awful, and also it just fucking looks ugly, man. Yeah. Um, like it looks like people don't care about that space because they don't because it's not there for people. It's there for capital. It's there to be efficient. Um, and yeah, and I mean, 
I don't want to like pretend that socialism is going to magically have like awesome architecture. Like, you know, Soviet brutalism is like pretty ugly. Yeah, but it also but, could. Like, and but we're it also doing could. socialist dreaming here. Yeah, we're, we're doing socialist dreaming. So, you know, I dream about, um, you know, an urban planning norm, which is to make things beautiful for people. Yeah. Because we have to live here. Totally. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that briefly covers that. Um, and I mean, obviously, we could say 10 million more things about each one of these, but we're just trying to go through them quickly. Um, so another that we have here is about language and multiculturalism and how to build, like, a socialist culture that, like, welcomes lots of different people who speak different languages and have different customs and to, like, share space together. Um, one of the dreams that Jay and I talk about a lot is the idea of having... Uh, local indigenous language revival projects at the level of public education. Yeah. Um, and how great it would be if all kids were brought up in a multilingual society where they were taught different languages in schools. And I think that, like, you know, we talk, like, you know, in the Nexus, there's a lot of talk about decolonization and, like, what that would even mean. Um, and I find it surprising that, like, there is so little talk about language. Well, there's a lot of talk about decolonization and rarely much about what it would actually mean. Yeah, exactly. Like, again, it's reduced to this, like, really symbolic thing. Um, But language is such a fundamental and important part of culture. And a lot of what happens in colonization projects is the destruction of language, as well as obviously other aspects of culture. And also just the the devaluation of, of... Languages that are deemed to be like the uh, the inferior ones, right, or the languages of the inferior people, um, the conquered people. Those languages are not only like um, you know, there, there's not only attempts to actively exterminate them, but they're devalued, right? Yeah. Um, and so, what does it mean to like decolonize, to like make make it so that the state is no longer a colonial state? Well, one of the things it would mean would be for the people who were previously the the colonized you know, like the population of people to whom colonization was happening, um, for, for the state to serve them in the same way that it serves the people um, who, for whom colonization was happening, right? right? Um, and so what would that mean? I mean, in the case of Canada, it would mean that French and English, the colonial languages, would no longer be the only languages in which the state operates. Yeah. Um, the languages of indigenous people would become languages in which the state operates because those people would no longer be considered the colonized people, right? They would be considered people for whom the state operates, not just on whom it operates. Um, And so, you know, many of the indigenous languages, very unfortunately, are in states of like extreme decline. A lot of them, you know, have gone extinct. Um, but there are some that are relatively healthy. And I think that those languages in particular, um, should be, um, subject to really deep programs of revitalization. Yeah. And that should absolutely include, um, on the level of the state, not only though, just for like cultural reasons either. Right. Like I think that on a very material level, um, someone who is a, you know, who speaks, um, Cree or Inuktitut as their first language should be able to have, services um and not just like not just like a government bureaucrat but also like a doctor yeah um in their first language because they're fucking from here yeah right they're from here they should be able to have a doctor's visit in inuktitut or at the very very least with an inuktitut translator present yeah um yeah it's super necessary yeah um and also i think that we could like have a cultural shift where like being multilingual is like something that is normal is something that is, you know, 
encouraged from like a super young age. Like kids are sponges for languages and it's so sad that we don't use that opportunity. Like obviously some people do. Um, but here, like in the school system, like if a kid is like multilingual, it's because they, they are speaking a language at home with their parents and then they're being taught like English and or French in school. Right. Um, but we actually could, because kids are sponges for language, literally teach them a bunch of languages when they're kids. And then we would have such a richer society because we would be able to communicate to each other in a whole bunch of different languages. Right? And, and yeah, like it also means that the government would in a generation at least, um, be able to fully commit to um, serving indigenous populations in the same way that they serve, uh, you know, settler populations. Totally. Right? Um, by making sure that there are professionals in like all the important sectors who are fluent in um, Mohawk, fluent in Cree, fluent in Inuktitut. Yeah, and I'm just going to make a tiny little tangent about the Nexus here where, you know, it's so crazy because like in the Nexus, um, People who are drawn to, like, learning a language that is, like, you know, not not of their culture and especially a language like an indigenous language that has been um, pushed to the brink of not existing anymore will be accused of cultural appropriation, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, and there's a, there's a similar thing that happens with ASL. Mm-hmm. So, like, ASL is, like, you know, the language that, like, a lot of deaf people communicate in. And, like, there was, there's been, like, weird drama about people accusing hearing people who want to learn ASL of being appropriative. But meanwhile, it's, like, people who speak a language want lots of people to speak that language so that they can communicate to people. Yeah. Like, languages are for communicating. The whole point is so that a bunch of people can talk to each other, right? Yeah. Um, and so, obviously, it is a good thing to learn languages so that people can talk to each other in that language, you know? And we're in this, like, extremely um, English-centered like situation globally now where it's like if we want to talk communally everybody's expected to learn english but it doesn't have to be that way right um it's also like that's not the norm in most of the world by the way and like americans and a lot of like anglophone canadians um and actually anglophones in general uh rarely are in a position where they have to learn other languages and and they're often in a position where people speakers of other languages speak english yeah um so to them it's very normal to be unilingual but being unilingual is very bizarre like, on a world level. Like, yeah. almost no one in the world is unilingual, you know? Well, okay, I'm exaggerating a bit. But, like, people in most countries speak two, three, or sometimes four languages as a matter of course. Yeah. It's, it's totally normal, you yeah. know? In, in a big city in Africa to speak several different local languages as well as the colonial one. Yeah, but the reason for that is because people are learning languages from a very young age. Yep. And it's because it's embedded in the culture, whereas here it isn't. And they don't speak prestige languages, right? So they, they're, they're, like, forced to learn a different language as well, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but we could totally encourage that here by having, you know, very robust language um, classes in the school system. And also, like, we should have classes for adults who want to be adult learners and learn languages. Like, that should be highly encouraged and rewarded if people are trying to take up learning a different language. Agreed. Um, so that's just, like, a big rant about language. Um do you want to talk about rapid transit? I do want to talk about rapid transit. I want fucking high-speed trains in Canada. I want fucking high-speed trains in Canada. Why can't we have them in Canada? <laughs> they have them in other places. And to be honest, I didn't even know about this until Jay constantly... I'm just going to tell you something about Jay. <laughs> Jay constantly goes on rants about high-speed trains. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I didn't even know that this was a thing, and apparently it is a thing. So. I mean, yeah, look, in, in the past couple decades... China has built, like, the largest network of high-speed trains in the world. Um, you can get from anywhere 
of consequence in China to anywhere else of consequence in China in like an hour. Yeah. Um, and they did this, you know, in like a, a developing country, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm just like, okay, so I live in Canada, a country yeah. that like, okay, and some people who aren't Canadians like don't know this, but Canada, you, when you look at a map of Canada, it's like this big giant country, right? But that's, it's actually much more similar to a country like Chile in that it is like a tiny strip of populated territory, and then the rest of it, it's not unpopulated, but it's populated almost entirely by very small communities of indigenous people, right? Yeah. Um, and the, like, 99% of the population of Canada is in this, like, tiny strip along the American border, because that's the the area where there's, like, you know, farmable land, and um, it's warm enough for, like, to sustain a large population yeah. of people, right? Yeah. Um, and so, it's, it's, like, it's bizarre that we don't have rapid high-speed train linkages from coast to coast in Canada. Yeah. First of all, because we like literally need it so badly to even pretend to be like a real fucking country where you can get from one city to another. Yeah. Um, but second of all, because it's actually like, it's funny because Canada is set up like geographically in such a way that you could serve 99% of the population with like a single fucking train track. Yeah. Like, just totally. like going across the country. Totally. You know what I mean? It like would link all the major cities. And I want to say one other thing about a rapid transit um, high-speed train network, like a nationalized one, by the way, that's fucking free, um, it would completely change the demographic like density of Canada because all of a sudden, living in like Thunder Bay wouldn't be you know, committing to a 15-hour fucking car drive to... Uh, yeah, absolutely. To uh, Toronto. Yeah. You know? Because, like, there are cities in Canada that are, you know... They're, like, the major city of, like, let's say, like, northwestern Ontario or something, but it's, like, fucking far, man, to get anywhere else, yeah. right? And so if you're, like, an immigrant to Canada, you know, maybe you're going to move to somewhere like that. Probably fucking not, though. Yeah. You're going to move to Toronto, Montreal, Brampton. Vancouver... Brampton, yeah, <laughs> you know, possibly Halifax, whatever, um, but you're not going to move, like, I mean, it's not that these cities have, like, no immigrants, but, like, you know, people, you know, they don't want to fucking settle somewhere, like, it's like a tiny town in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah. But if, if it was, like, a fucking 45-minute train ride to Toronto, yeah, that now that's a different everything. fucking story, yeah. man. That means you can visit your fucking family, whatever, yeah. and it means that Canada would have more than just three fucking real cities. Yeah. Well, like, you know, and I think that that would happen pretty quickly and it would relieve some of the housing pressure yeah, that we have in, totally. in the major cities in Canada too, right? Like, it's like, everyone fucking moves to Toronto, man. And Toronto yeah. is just expanding like this crazy tentacular monstrosity yeah. across Southern Ontario, like eating up all the arable land in the country, yeah, right? Um, so that people can live in these like, ugly fucking suburban, like high-rise towers yeah. because nobody wants to live in fucking Thunder Bay. Yeah. Okay, that's my rant. Yeah, it was a great rant. Um, yeah, and I also think, yeah, like it... It will reduce our reliance on airplanes as well, which yeah. is a very important ecological consideration for climate change. Like, you should be able to go to the other side of the country without flying in a plane um, and without a train. Or without, or without driving for fucking yeah. a week. Yeah, and, like, a train is going to take, as, as it currently stands, it's going to take a really long time. So most people don't travel that way. Um, okay, so we already talked a little bit about education, but I would like to see, like, massive, robust education. I would like to see a free university. I would like to see the elimination of all student debt as absurd and made up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I would like to, I would like to really encourage people, like, one of the things, like, I already went on my rant about, like, the human brain, right? But I just think that people are so incredible and have so much fucking potential. And there are so many people who are fucking brilliant at specific things, right? Because not everybody's brilliant at everything, right? And there are people who have these potentials who are, like, really fucking have, like, an aptitude for, like, science or, like, 
philosophy or like mm. whatever planning strategy like fucking architecture i don't know all sorts of crazy shit and they can't fucking do anything about it because they are living under capitalism and because of poverty and because of the families that they come from and because of the life situations that they have they literally never get to pursue higher education and they never get to develop their skill set right yeah, and they're stuck working a fucking job that can be done by a robot yeah and so i'm like Honestly, I'm like, people should be encouraged to follow their their passions, their dreams, and their aptitudes, and we should be, like, really highly encouraging that. And I'm like, anyone who wants to, like, go into fucking science and is, like, able to do that shit should be highly encouraged to do it, and they should be fully backed in doing that, right? Um, and more than just that, I think that, like, um, higher education is a good in and of itself. Yeah. And I think that in Quebec, we... We all agreed on that as a society like fucking 40 years ago in Quebec. But then again, just like with fucking healthcare, they've been slowly like creeping yeah. it back, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, like tuition in Quebec is extremely cheap. Um, you can do your entire education and have like debt of like, you know, a handful of grand. Yeah. And that's super not like that in the rest of the country. Yeah. Um, but that's because people in Quebec have like fought for that like very dramatically over the years. But even so, they're still fucking like finding ways to raise tuition, right? But um, the point is that, yeah, like, we all agreed at a certain point that, like, having a, a well-educated workforce was good, yeah. you know, but also just, like, socially speaking, yeah. like, it's good for people to be able to understand the ideas that surround them. Absolutely. You know? And especially if we want to solve the climate crisis and if we want to have, you know, like, interesting, robust fucking societies, we want people to be well-educated, right? And so, you know what I would like to fucking see? Yeah. I want to tell you, I would like to see the entire education system be, like, really revamped um, to make it way more normal for adults to go back to school, not necessarily to get an entire like four year degree yeah, in a particular course, topic, yeah. but literally just to like pursue like a particular interest of theirs yeah. in like a, an institution of higher learning, um, for, you know, let's say like six months or something, um, simply because they want to be more knowledgeable about a certain, yeah. you know, topic, whatever it is. Right. Or if they want to learn like a little, like half a trade. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like that should be not only like accessible, but really normalized yeah. and not only normalized, but, um, supported. Yeah. Like as in, you know, um, your wages, like from your normal job could be like paid by the government, like while you're, um, while you're going to school for six months or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, to like keep your, to keep your job there for you or something. Yeah. Totally. The same way that, like, maternity leave might work. Yeah. Right? Um, or the same way that it might work if you wanted to go, like, um, do a wildlife restoration project. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm now that you said maternity leave, I realized that we didn't actually put that on the list. But Oh, yeah, stuff a, for parents. Um, a lot of socialist dreaming that I have is about supporting parents and families. Um, obviously, having, like, massive reproductive health stuff so that people can enter into that in a consensual and chosen way and also literally just giving parents physically everything that they need we talked about this a little bit on the episode with stevie but yeah. like parents should have access to like whatever the fuck they need for their kids and it's absurd that they don't yep. and um also like classes for parents like you know when i think about just like intergenerational trauma and stuff like that like Parents are fucking trying, but it's really hard because, first of all, they have their own trauma. And then, secondly, they literally aren't fucking taught any of this stuff. Like, all this stuff about, like, attachment theory and, like, the the knowledge that we now have about, like, what infants need. Like, a lot of um, 
at least boomers, like, they were, like, raised with totally different ideas about that stuff, right? Mm. And so, like, even millennials and younger generations um, don't necessarily know what helps infants and children grow up in a secure way, right? Totally, man. Um, And so, like, giving, like, free classes for parents and not just the biological parents, but anyone who is, like, involved in children's lives about how to do that well would be excellent. Totally. Can I just throw something in super quick? It's just, like, it's really an aside, but it's an interesting thing. I remember reading an article. It was years ago. I don't know if I could even find it again, but it just, like, really blew my mind and made me think, right? And the article is basically saying that um, couples, but particularly, like, women who have kids when they're, like, 20 Mm -hmm. um, and are really well-supported through that process report being, like, a lot happier later in their lives. Right. um, Because, you know, by the time they're, like, 30, whatever, um, their kids are, like, basically, you know, can function. They're not just, like, little worms. Um, And then you can sort of, like, start with, like, working on um, your own, like, goals and aspirations and whatever. Um, And, like, you are still young. You know what I mean? Like, you're done with your kid thing and you're still young and you can like just you know be like a young adult or like a you know in your in your early 30s like you're still like a young adult really um and that that like the article was suggesting that that's something that we should be trying to like sort of like encourage people to do but in like the way that things are currently set up it's like if you want like a career if you want to be like supported while you do that you have to have like a rich husband or whatever yeah you know what i mean it's like basically impossible for like a 20 year old now um, who's, like, trying to be, like, responsible or whatever yeah. to start having kids, man. Like, that's, like, it's kind of, like, a big decision. And, and so, obviously, like, a lot of people now are delaying childbirth, like, later and later, which has its own, like, consequences. Anyways, it's, it's something to think about that, like, I don't know. I find that this kind of thing is, like, really, like, never discussed in the Nexus. And there's lots of reasons for that. But it's interesting to at least be able to sort of, like, start having, like, different ideas about, like, how you could, um, if you had, like, a, a socialist society that was willing to fucking support people like how you could support young parents too yeah yeah and i mean part of what that brings up for me is that like you know with all of this stuff about like reproductive choice right which is like super important i mean again it comes back to the thing is like is it a real choice if the other thing if the other option isn't a real choice right and so like the idea of all of these people delaying childbirth like a lot of a lot of people have not because they don't want to be parents but because it has never been a realistic possibility for them to have kids in a way that is going to be financially viable, right? And so they haven't, and, like, I'm definitely in that boat where, like, I wish I would have had kids when I was younger, but, like, I absolutely couldn't have in any kind of circumstance, right? Like, it was not possible in my life in any kind of way. And so, you know, now, like, there's, there's women in their, like, late 30s and 40s who are, like, finally, like, okay, no, I really want to, like, be a mom or whatever, um, and they're only able to do that now because they never had the the financial and material security earlier in their life to actually be able to make that decision. Exactly. So, um, okay, so I want to talk about community centers. So, like, I have this extreme dream of community centers. I want community centers, like, in each neighborhood to be this, like, robust hub, you know, where there's, like, so many things going on in the building. You can just picture this, like, big building that has, like, these cafe, like, cafeteria areas where, like, you can get, like, food for, like, free or, like, maybe really cheap. Um, You have, like, a gym that you can access. And, like, you could have just, like, a membership to the whole thing. If we're really going to socialist dream, I'm, like, this whole thing is free. Automatic Um, automatic membership. (laughs) Yeah. And so, like, there's a gym. There's, like, a public library. There's, like, a bunch of, like, classes that go on. There's, like, you know, like, yoga. But there's also, like, language classes and, like, 
cooking classes and like pottery classes or like stuff like that for people to participate in. Um, there's like a hall for people to be doing like various like projects that they're working on in the community, maybe like civic engagement stuff. Can I jump in super quick? Like, yeah. People who've been to university have sort of already had access to this because in a lot of ways, universities are kind of like that. It's like a big ass institution that has like, you know, it has like a counselor, it has like a gym, it has like, you know, all these different sort of like services that you have like access to as like a member, as like a student of the university, right? Um, but for most people, if they even do go to university, they have that for, you know, four years and then it's done. Right? Yeah. And from then on, you have to like individually sign up for everything, you yeah. know? But so like we already have kind of like a model for what something like that could look like, right? And I think that, oh man. Okay. I'm just going to say it. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt your. Yeah. Your, I was socialist dreaming, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a, a literal dream. Yeah. Once. Um, and it was during the student strike in 2012. Yeah. Um, and I had a literal dream where. Um, so there's a bunch of universities in Montreal and they're all kind of in a line. Yeah. Like there's UCAM, there's McGill, there's Concordia, and then there's Dawson College and they're all like on the green line. Oh the yeah. Metro, right? I remember like this dream. You in told a row. me about yeah. it. Yeah. And in my dream, they were all like literally connected underground and it was, they were just like full of people at all times. And basically they were like the beating like heart of the city. Um, and they were providing like all the sort of different services and stuff that everybody needed all the time. And they had been like completely socialized. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was just like, they were open at all times to everyone. And it was really like this like busy sort of like amazing space where like everyone was like doing the kind of like generative discussions that we were talking about in these yeah. like big free classes totally. for like all workers and whatever, you know what I yeah. mean? Um, anyway, sorry, that's, I'm done. Okay. My community, community centers, my community center dream. So yeah. And so you could just also on top of there being like all of this, like social infrastructure, like you could just go there, you know, at the end of your day, of course there's daycare there too. You can drop your kids off. There's like space to like, just like hang out and talk with your friends and your neighbors. There's like, you know, maybe the community garden is like adjacent to the building. Um, there's a swimming pool, there's a hot tub anyway. But then also <laughs> there's, um, there's like offices where there's workers there that you can go in and you can just like present like the various different issues that you're having. So you just go to the local community center and you're like, look, there's a few things going on right now. One is that like, there's like stuff going on with my kid. Like my kid is having like some behavioral issues that's like stressing me out and I don't really know what's going on there. The other is that like, I have like a weird mole and like, I need to have it looked at. I'm not sure what's going on there. Um, and like the other is that like, you know, um, I'm like a bit stressed about my health and I want like better nutrition or something. Those are just random things, right? Right. But then you can just talk to this one person and they're like, okay, great. So tomorrow we're going to have you come in um, to the doctor's office to get you a biopsy for your skin thing. We're going to, uh, if you want to bring your kid in, like we can hook you up with like family therapy. We can also get your kid like an individual therapist to work with. Um, we can also talk to your kid directly about wh what's going on with your kid and figure out what they might want. Mm -hmm. Um, and also we have these cooking classes that we can like sign you up for to like teach you about nutrition and like how to develop that in your life or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Right. So like these like kind of disparate issues that you're having in these various types of areas of your life that are about your health and your wellness and like your needs, you could just go to your community center and talk to someone and they're like hooked up with all the services, right? So they just immediately connect you with everything that you need in such a more holistic way than anything we could possibly imagine right now, right? Like it's not just about like a doctor's thing. It's also about like anything else that you might possibly need, right? And they could hook you up. And so all of this is happening in one place. Totally. And again, it's like, um, many of these things that we're describing, like we already sort of have like versions of them, but they are, uh, privatized in some way, or they're like extraordinarily underfunded or they're like restricted in who can access them or whatever. But it's like, you know, like 
you know, access to like a social worker or something is like not, it's not like just easy to get a social worker. There's, um, there's a lot of like paperwork involved. And even then they're like super overworked and like they're tired and there's not even a lot of resources to direct you to anyway. You exactly. know what I mean? Because, because all of our social infrastructure has been gutted, um, for, by decades of neoliberalism. And so what we're proposing isn't even like this crazy, like break, um, with currently existing society. And this is like something else that like is interesting about the kind of socialist dreaming that we're proposing. Um, cause we really want to think about what our actually existing society yeah. would look like under socialism. Yeah. Right. And so we're not talking about this like fucking made up futuristic, like, uh, like gay space communism, gay space communism or whatever. We're talking about Montreal. Yeah. You and know? what it could look like here and now. And what it could look like here and now if we funded shit properly and as a society collectively decided that these that this like holistic uh, physio-psychosocial wellness or whatever was a major priority yeah. of, of our society. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so there's a couple more that you want to you end it there? I think that maybe we should end it because we are running up on two hours. Okay, wow. This was a long episode. But so, we have more socialist dreams that we will tell you about in later episodes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, we have, like, ideas about um, how to take this shit internationally and develop international solidarity. Obviously, we want to abolish the current existing cops and, and, and prison system and replace it with something better. And we want to find more ways for civic um, engagement for regular people. So, I mean, that was just us, like, quickly running through it. We literally talk about this stuff for like hours on end amongst ourselves. Um, and we hope that this is just like an invitation for you to start your own socialist dreaming and to talk at length with your friends and people in your life or just random people that you might meet about what this stuff could look like. And then from there, how could this stuff become possible? And we just want to leave it as like seeds that we're planting. Um, I really liked one of the things that, that Stevie said in the interview with Stevie that we did recently um, where he was like, you know, the job of a union organizer is to raise expectations. Mm. And I'm like, what if we all raised our fucking expectations? Yeah, like, seriously. Like, high, high, high. Like, we're settling for scraps. Yeah. Like, barely scraps right yeah. now, right? Yeah. And it's like, if we're really going to be asking people to make personal sacrifices, to give up the little time that we have to actually come together and organize, to actually, like, do something like a mass strike, for example, to make demands in a real way, where we're not just symbolically saying we're making demands, but where we actually have mass power to back it up, then we need it to be for a good fucking reason, right? And so I want us to dream big, big, big dreams and then get to the work of, like, how do we actually make this shit possible? Yeah, fuck you, comrade. All right. All right. Um, thank you very much. And, uh, oh, yeah, I guess we should remind people about our... Uh our capitalist dream of getting paid on Patreon. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, you can uh, check us out on patreon.com slash fucking cancel with two L's. Um, if you yeah. Wanna... It's really, we appreciate it. It helps to support us to do this work because we do a lot of work on the pod. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Um, and uh, yeah, you can also email us at uh, fucking canceled at gmail.com. There's no you in fucking because Gmail wouldn't let us. And there's two L's in canceled because we're Canadian. Bye guys. Bye.